We live in unreasonable times, and it's in moments like this that we need big ideas. And for that, we can look to our past. 300 years ago, a revolution of ideas called the Enlightenment began. People believed that humankind, against all odds, could improve itself and flourish, that problems could be solved through the practical application of reason. And from this basic idea came many more. Humanism, individualism, progress, inquiry, and liberty. It was a time of optimism. As an expression of these principles, the idea that art could reflect the values and concerns of society took root. Today we live in a polycultural world, moving rapidly into a future that's still reckoning with the mistakes of its past. It begs the question, are these Enlightenment ideals still relevant? Artists still hold a mirror up to society. They let us see who we are, and in doing so, they sometimes show us who we can be. They give us the measure of the human spirit and inspire us to think deeply about the worlds that we can create together. At their best, artists reveal a foundational truth and lead us toward a better future. Over six episodes, we speak to some of the most influential artists of our time, connecting them with some of the world's best thinkers, poets, scientists, and philosophers who share their curiosity around these centuries-old ideas. It's at this crossroads of artistic insight and intellectual curiosity that we find the edge of reason. A new limited series podcast produced by Atlantic Rethink, the Atlantic's branded content studio, in partnership with Hauser & Worth, a home to visionary, modern, and contemporary artists. Each week, we'll transcend the boundaries of time and thought, channeling the spirit of the Enlightenment to delve into the obsessions that underpin the work of some of today's leading artists. This week, we're speaking with Alison Katz, a Canadian-born London-based painter whose diverse images, from roosters and octopuses to landscapes and fanciful renderings of her own name, explore the often contradictory nature of identity, memory, and meaning. And also joining us today is Nuar Alsadir, psychoanalyst, poet, and author of the acclaimed poetry book, Fourth Person Singular, as well as the 2022 book, Animal Joy, a book of laughter and resuscitation, which explores the liberating possibilities of curiosity and humor. Alison, what role does reason play in your process? Is reason a, a, a limit or a boundary? Well, I think the act of painting is very reasonable in the sense that it is bounded by this rational thing called the frame and the choices one makes before they even start painting are all very rational. You know, there's a scale, there's a size, there's the material and there's the limit of the size. I don't really know how else to put it, but it seems to me it's a very rational frame in which to then touch and engage with the irrational, but it wouldn't be possible if it wasn't so bounded initially. And if it didn't operate on a sort of logic that, you know, you have these materials inside this space. And so you begin with a very deliberate set of tools and a history. I think it takes a lot of courage in 
side process to stay with this unknowing and to withhold judging, both in terms of what the thing will look like, what effect it will have on both oneself and the viewer, and how it will lead to other things. So this idea of ambiguity or uncertainty, it is what I think actually connects a work of art to a viewer, even if there are very recognizable features or factors to the work, there is some level of risk with not fully understanding the impact or the import of the artwork. And I think the painter, the artist has to feel it themselves first. And so that means not finishing it fully, if that makes sense, but really leaving something a little bit open or even a lot open in whatever form that takes. Noir, you're a poet and a psychoanalyst. How did you come to these twin vocations and how did they come together uh, in your mind? I would have to go back to childhood. When I was young, I thought I had ESP because no one around me was talking about the things that I was perceiving and feeling. And I, of course, didn't. It was just that I didn't know how to understand what wasn't put into language or explained to me. And I found the arts really early. And in the arts, I played multiple instruments. I was a ballet dancer. I wrote poetry. I felt as though I was inside of a world that perceived and felt and thought the way I did. I also came from a family in which both of my parents were doctors. Many of my relatives were as well. And it was assumed that I would become a doctor. I was good in school. I was good at math and science. And when I went to college, I was pre-med. And in looking for a major, I found neuroscience I was completely fascinated with the brain and how it works and ways of understanding that. I ended up dropping pre-med and my neuroscience major and doing an English major in my last year because I didn't want to be a neurologist. So I did an English major. I moved to New York, did an MFA in poetry, was going about my writing world and publishing and just missed the brain, eventually decided to go back and train to become an analyst. So it seems like they're very separate professions, but through the path my life took, they were interconnected. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for that. This might be a little bit jarring, but I, I wanted to ask you this question. How do you think of the Enlightenment idea of reason? What's reason to you? Reason is one of the most important tools we have for understanding our world and our experience and making sense of things. It's not the only tool and it's not the only approach, but it is crucial. And I find in psychoanalysis, there are moments when reason is essential. 
And there are other moments when other approaches need to be enlisted. For example, if I'm working with someone in analysis whose formative conflicts occurred during a period of time in their lives that was pre-linguistic, in order for them to be able to communicate that to me, I can't demand that they use language. Because if they didn't have language when it was imprinted in their brains, then they can't use language only to communicate it to me. They have to use other forms of communication, what we call in psychoanalysis, unconscious communication. So I have to tend to other levels of communication and other ways of emitting and receiving signals. And some of those are communicated outside of language through the body. In your book, Animal Joy, a book of laughter and resuscitation, which is brilliant, by the way, it's so wonderful. You talk about how meaning can move between the body and the mind, and sometimes even between the body and the body, that it can bypass reason, I think is, is what your, your point is here. And I'm wondering if you can explain that a little bit more for our listeners. Freud's earliest study was with what he called hysteria, which is also sometimes called a conversion disorder. And conversion symptoms to him were when something in the mind is converted to the body. It gets encoded, encrypted, so that it can be moved out of the way and not disturb a person so they can function in all of the ways that they want to function in the communal world. So when a person has hysterical symptom or a conversion, it's a way of moving the thought from the mind to the body. And the mind and the body are not quite as distinct as we like to think of them as being. For example, what is the mind? Metaphorically, we think of it as being in the head, but where is it? Can you point to it? Of course not. We think of the brain as being representative of the mind, but we receive information all over the body. So it would have to be considered to be throughout not only our bodies, but also maybe interpersonally, because our bodies also are not as enclosed as we like to imagine. For example, on the first day of my biology class in college, the professor said, we think of ourselves as being enclosed and our bodies having an interior. In actuality, there is the external world inside of our bodies because we have so many microbes in our digestive system, for example, and we have two openings on either end for this external environment that is housed inside of our bodies. So we're not as separate from the external world as we like to imagine. And that was mind-blowing for me. And it also leads to quantum entanglement, ideas of space-time, and the ways in which we have no now. I'm talking to you, but 
as I speak to you, it takes your mind an eighth of a millisecond to process what I'm saying. So I'm actually speaking into your immediate future. So even as we're all present together, we're not present in space and we're not present in time, but we're somehow entangled. Well, here we are all together. And and Allison, I, I know you've been anxious to speak with Nuar about her work. Where do you want to start? Well, aside from animal joy, which I love, I've been delving deep into fourth person singular. And there was one paragraph or one section, one poetic section. I don't even know because the format is so experimental and interesting to me, but there's one section where you talk about this childhood character that you used to read about called the great brain yeah, who enlisted his unconscious basically to solve any problems. And the last sentence of that you wrote, even if it were possible to consciously enlist the unconscious in this way, in order to do so, you'd have to open yourself up to what might seep out. And I feel that the power of psychoanalysis as a practice is that you are connecting to what might seep out and learning how to live with that and even transform it into energy or excitement. Things that previously used to feel so unnameable, but it's true that one never expects the seeping and yet the seeping is the energy. So I would love to hear you speak more about that. I was thinking as you were talking about excitement, how so many people are ashamed of excitement. It's embarrassing. And how many emotions or expressions that are connected to our fundamental energy source embarrass us especially when they are expressed through the body, how detached we try to be from the body in order to be sophisticated, cultured, poised. And yet, if you're an artist, how essential it is to be able to tap into that power source in order to create And how doing so in a way also pulls you further from everything that we're taught to value and project, the ways of being that will be rewarded for. You have to be willing to let what seeps out seep out. Yeah, we were always taught, I mean, not always, let's say I had very good graduate school experience and was very lucky to be visited and to listen to some of the greatest contemporary artists. And it almost was the running theme that if you can use embarrassment as your gauge, you are probably making something good or at least worth looking at. If it embarrasses you or if it causes some sort of discomfort, there is some of the true self. And then that is what communicates. And it's not only embarrassment, of course, but that is actually a great registration of meaning. I'm wondering if we might be able to talk about laughter, actually, which of course is the topic of animal joy. And Allison, it's key to your work, it feels like. Uh, Nu, are you open 
your book with an illustration of you with your daughters at the dinner table. I'm wondering if you could tell that story a little bit and why you think it's so important. One of my daughters sat down to dinner, looked at the food and said, disgusted, I'm not hungry. And her sister said, that's rude. And she said, I don't care what you think. And then I said, that's rude too. You should apologize. And she slipped. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, she was looking at me and she said, I'm sorry for you. And the moment the slip registered, her lips tucked in and she was trying really hard not to laugh. And then her sister laughed and they both burst into a hysterical fit of laughter. And I go into a quotation from Orwell where he says, every joke is a tiny revolution. And there's no harm in it, but it does overturn the power structure. So it was a form of resistance to my authority. I demanded an apology. And apologies are ridiculous in many ways because they're magical thinking. It's not as though once you say sorry, everything is transformed or things get bigger. It's really sadomasochistic. You're asking the other person to submit. And if they submit, then you're on top and then you can accept their submission. When I read that, I was like, wow, that could be that maybe the use of humor within painting is a way to try and overcome the the authority of art history. And even though that authority is also very life-affirming and grants permission because it's it's open to participate in, it also feels sometimes like it's closed. And the joke is a way to break it open and also feels subversive in the sense that it feels wrong and against, let's say, the master, the, the seriousness. But I always found that humor is a way of generating image. But again, it feels like a very abstract thing. I'm not sure I could even explain why or how, except when I read more about this sort of way that you explained how humor works and operates, I could see that it is that sort of revolutionary spark, however tiny, and that that is very generative. Can you think of an example in painting of a joke or humor? Well, that painting that I made that shows a road and chicken and a cock on a effectively, they look like they're crossing the road. Well, there's a road and they're there. And I called the painting Don't Ask um, because A-S-K are my initials. But also, why did the chicken cross the road? And this why, I've been told by those who knew me as a child and actually those who know me now that I ask a lot of questions that I can be relentless why, why, why? And so to me, this was also a joke about maybe there's no answer. There's no reason in this case, you know? And actually, I think that, you know, painting is the one place where in a way you you don't ever have to justify why you're doing something. With poetry, it is similar. Why would you write 
poetry, if you wanted to explain something, you would write in prose. Poetry is outside of the sentence, but also the sentence of history and logic and reason. You're permitted to communicate and transmit meaning in whatever way you want. It's an area of freedom and free play. Hmm. Yeah, especially how you use it, because I feel that you are kind of also often hinting at reasonable forms, like numbering something, but then you'll do numbers that are out of order. So there's at once a reference to the logic of numbering one, two, three, but then if you go from 35 to 12, the logic is out of order. And Freud said there's no sense of time in the unconscious. So when you're in the unconscious, all of those modes of reason dissolve. And there, there's also no sense of time in the way that the unconscious exerts its force on our current lives. And yet it has such a strong hold on the way we think. Mm. And I think that as someone who has been in and out of analysis for close to 20 years now, it is a tool. It is one of the main forms of motivation, even excitement towards painting, for example. And something I just read that James Joyce said, imagination is memory. And I thought, well, that makes so much sense for the pursuit of a psychoanalytic relationship to meet your memory, learn to visit it again from a different time in your life. It is really an overturning of this logic that can govern a lot of decisions and a lot of moves. And it also opens up memories that were previously almost locked away or inaccessible from a creative point of view with the understanding that you will also have other things seep out. You know, it's not a process that you can control, but it certainly is, for me anyhow, one of the primary ways to to understand creativity and memory. You know, that there are very few, let's say, activities for the true self to be accepted and to be developed. And I mean, the, you know, painting or poetry in and of itself you have to be able to find methods to sit with that discomfort, both in understanding your own motivation or your own drive and to hold on through process, which can be very testing and surprising. You know, I actually find that it's painting is not something that gets easier and it's not something that becomes habitual. It, it actually is constantly calling for renewal and difference. And I guess I thought, oh, you get better, you know, it's linear. And for sure, you learn more skills, but then you have to almost scramble how you use those skills. And that is not logical. It is not linear, right? So I think if it stays alive, there are so many artists and writers who, once they become successful, imitate themselves And then they're creating the same kind of work, but it loses that aliveness 
that you achieve if you're constantly trying to renew. To go back to what you were saying about memory also, it's thought that every time we recall a memory, we change it. And so the memories that we recall most frequently keep getting altered through the lens of the present in which they're being recalled. And what happens then is that the memory continues to change alongside a person's idea of themselves or the story of themselves that they have. So when you recover a memory that hasn't been recalled, it's often very surprising because it hasn't been evolving with your idea of yourself. But in being recalled, it's like a photograph from the past or a portal to the past as it was. And there's a newness, a freshness to it that can be destabilizing if you're invested in the idea of who you are. They say that the only perfect memory, true memory, is the memory in the mind of someone with amnesia because it's never recalled. It's in that vault. Does that resonate with uh, the processes that you might have undertaken under any of your paintings? Can you give us maybe examples of what you might be hearing in Nuar's um, words here that resonate for your work? I mean, yeah. The thing that I immediately think of is how I can look at something for a long time but not be ready to paint it. You know, like it could be an old photograph, it could be a poem, it could be an article, a painting from art history, something like that, like an image. And I think what I'm also doing is gathering over time a visual relationship. Like I'm making a memory of this thing. And it's almost as though if I have a sufficient memory bank of it, it starts to be something that isn't that exact thing. And it starts to be something that can be adapted and can um, become a conversation. But when I read this Joyce line that imagination is memory, it made a lot of sense about a psychoanalytic bent, this feeling of why does it matter to interrogate, however gently, what one thinks one is made of. And I also think visual memories are a really powerful thing because, you know, they've also done studies that people who have a very good memory can draw better because in fact, we are always recalling. And, and that really goes along to something I've believed, which is that, you know, every brush mark is a quote. Every painting's been made. Every possible way of making something has been made, but we are in conversation with it and we bring to it a certain set of conditions that are unique. And that's how it progresses it's circular and it, it sort of eats itself. And I also love that line, Noir, how Freud said, can I eat it? Or what, what is it again? Our first interaction? He, he says that the first thought is, I would like to eat it or I would like to spit it out. That's the initial way that we interact with the world. But that's also about taste, like the literal taste. I want it through my mouth and also my likes and my dislikes. And that's why I'm so fond of using that mouth frame, which is a quote of a woodcut by André Derain, 
from 1943 because it's to say the frame of the body can never be not mentioned. And in this way, it is sort of like, it's a liminal space. Painting is not an interior condition. It's as much an exterior state of the world. I never thought of painting as being, I have an inside thought and I want to present it to the outside. It's more this kind of continuous relay between inside and outside that gets caught for a moment on a surface that is also a skin and that also conceals you know this idea of the blank canvas is such a myth such a fiction because there's nothing ever blank you know we we aren't coming to things blank and um to me that's painting's kind of great contribution it's that it is always referential it is always referring to something, even if the artist themselves doesn't even know. Mm. That's actually really powerful and really important. I'm thinking of the paintings that she made of cabbages, <laughs> <laughs> the different layers of cabbage, right, that you can peel off. Noor, what's what's coming up for you as you're as you're listening to Allison? I was curious, Allison, when you use the term "ready," how do you know when you're ready? Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. I I think a lot of that is actually related to being in the world. So things like an invitation to me are some of the greatest um, gifts the world can give to something dormant. You know, you're invited, you know, an exhibition invitation, um, meeting someone new, having to perform even in a conversation, this is when things come to the surface and announce themselves as ready. You know, I think we like to think somehow that painting is always generated from within and from this sort of independent soul, but I feel very codependent. I think painting is very codependent uh, in a healthy way on context. And, And that's also what makes it contemporary because one doesn't have to set out to be contemporary so long as you are just conscious of the time you're living in. But that could even mean conscious of the person you're speaking to in that moment. Noah, we're talking about artist performance. And for Animal Joy, you decided to enroll yourself in clown school. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I'm wondering what came of that particular experience? What did you learn about the brain and about reason and about the subconscious in clown school? That's a great question. (laughs) I decided to go to clown school because I had been doing research for the book and going to places where there was laughter. So for example, I went to hear stand-up comedy. I went to improv shows, storytelling, And I ended up trying to pay attention to when the audience laughed. And I noticed that it may be our contemporary moment. The audience laughed most, not because something was funny, but because it was honest. And I was talking about this and someone said to me, oh, you should really look at clown because that is the whole basis of it. And so I took a one-day workshop and it was absolutely impossible for me to let myself go Mm. enough. I was fascinated by it, but 
it was too foreign a world for me to jump into and start running. So I enrolled in a two-week, six-hour-a-day intensive program. And it was (laughs) life-altering. Essentially, the idea in Clown is that if you connect with your emotion on stage, the audience will witness it and they will understand that connection to emotion and they will feel your emotion and they will be moved and that will be marked by laughter. They won't laugh because you're funny. I later analyzed the way this might work in the mind. And what I think happens is mere networking systems operate in such a way that if I were to witness someone about to slip, I would feel that slipping feeling inside myself as though it were my own. And what's interesting about mere neurons is that the same neurons fire whether an action is originating in yourself or it's originating in someone else. So you can actually feel someone else's feeling inside yourself as though it's your own. And it offers this mode of empathy, which is expansive, as opposed to the kind of empathy where you look at something intellectually and you might say, oh, I can imagine that would be difficult, but you're staying in your position and the other person is in their position and it's an intellectual move to recognize it as something rational. And the other mode of empathy is one that Sadia Hartman calls precarious, where someone puts themselves in someone else's shoes If you put yourself in someone else's shoes, where do they go? Hmm. Is it a form of colonization? Do you displace them? Does it have to be you in those shoes in order for it to be something you can identify with? It can be problematic for obvious reasons. In clown school, what I learned was a way of receiving people in their embodied being and not thinking so much about what they were saying, but receiving them emotionally, physically, and intellectually. That sounds like that Francis Bacon quote that painting is the patterns of one's nervous system. And in this way, like if someone is communicating with that honesty, then that creates an experience for the viewer. When I was reading all about clown in Animal Joy, I thought, well, the artist is a clown. That's exactly what it is. And honesty is, can be embarrassing, you know, back to that idea of the necessity of these sort of uncomfortable states. They are also the ones that allow communication to happen without language or communication to also happen over huge gulfs of time. Why can I look at a painting from hundreds of years ago and feel that I'm oh, feeling anything. It's because this, this transmission is there and it, it, it kind of stays in a surface. It can be expressed through brush marks and 
patterns and colors and all these nonverbal ways of holding that that clown energy i felt that was a perfect analogy for the act of painting the act of viewing the psychoanalyst beyond who was samuel beckett's analyst had this idea that you're supposed to as the analyst enter every session without memory desire or understanding and it was exactly what we were told when we took the stage as clowns we weren't supposed to use an idea we'd used in the past that worked which would be memory we weren't supposed to want to make the audience laugh because if you want to make them laugh you're bound to flop which would be the desire and we weren't supposed to begin with an idea which would be the understanding we're supposed to bring our full selves embodied onto the stage and see what impulse led us mm. into the performance similarly he had this concept he called beta elements and beta elements are these raw emotional transmissions that pass between people the example he used to illustrate it was of a mother and an infant and again it doesn't have to be gendered but he did gender it the infant doesn't have language and cries and the mother understands the different cries and what they mean by taking the cries into her own body and feeling them inside herself and asking what is that what is that feeling and then metabolizing it and putting it back out in symbolized form which would be language you're tired and that process of metabolization is how an infant learns to think they need this adjunct being mm. to teach them how to metabolize the raw data that they receive from the universe when it comes to art making if you metabolize too much and you over edit and you clean up in writing the work so that it's processed like a piece of american cheese and plastic wrapping <laughs> then there's nothing that gets transmitted there are no beta elements that reach the reader's body right and without the hooks and snags there will be no emissions that somehow miraculously continue to emit their force over centuries yeah there's nothing for the reader to really pick up at that embodied level and their minds will receive it right but they won't necessarily feel moved yeah and part of being moved is the desire to make when i'm looking in a way that i'm moved i want to respond and this idea of seeing things as a call and response is so moving to me that conversations happen across time with strangers you know no one is a stranger then it's a it's always this possibility for conversation and 
conversation without language is also really interesting. When I look at something or read something that gives me space to think and write and respond, I think, wow, that's the gift of engaging with painting and poetry. And, you know, when I was reading Animal Joy and Fourth Person Singular, I felt as though I was speaking to you, Noor. I was receiving things on this way where I'm like, oh, that is, you know, now I was more conscious to try and articulate what is this? And it's the feeling that it's present. That makes me happy. And just to kind of maybe tie it back to our theme, where, uh, where does reason stand within that set of levels that you want to take people to? Well, what's funny is sometimes the biggest enemy of painting is an idea. So when I have too much of an idea, I find that I really have to listen on how to let something else in because an idea with all its reason and its logic can leave no room for the logic of painting, which works in tandem. But, you know, you can't go in too strong with what you want to get out of it and what you want someone else to get out of it. And so the levels also have to be out of reach of the painter. You know, like there's that first level of, okay, well, I've got this idea, but then there's all the other ways that it has to go. And it, I think what's amazing about painting is that it, all the consciousness does reside in the surface. So it's another contradiction about depth and surface because the surface is the site of the depth. And you have to trust in the surface to communicate all the levels while at the same time, perhaps being very straightforward on one level that it could just be, you know, an image composed of pigments and inorganic material creating a a representational scenario. And it's perfectly reasonable and all right for a viewer to stop there and still get a lot out of it. You know, sometimes people say to me, well, if I didn't know all this stuff or how you were thinking, or if I didn't know all these other references, I wouldn't get the painting. And I said, but you would. And also it's, it's all right for painting to take time, meaning you don't have to ascertain and get everything all in the first glance. That would in fact be not ideal because it's something that should accrue meaning over time. And being able to look at something over and over again is probably what I would prefer. A slow reveal is a deeper reveal. A painting could have the possibility of doing that or not. I think that's the risk you take with a surface, with keeping everything on one plane. So it's something that, you know, it has an inexhaustibility to it, both on a desire level and on a possibility level. But it can also be very simple. Jeff Chang, and you've been on a journey to Edge of Reason. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, like and review on Apple Podcasts and help spread the word about our series to other listeners like you. 